This is the Education Gadfly Show. <laughs> Finally get the horrible owner Do you think that he'd fire the owner? That's the idea. Well, he would have to buy it. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. Now, please welcome my special guest for this week, Carrie Gillespie. Carrie, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Mike. Happy to be here. Yeah, Carrie is the Senior Analyst in P12 Policy at the Education Trust. Also joining us, my co-host, David Griffith. Hey, Mike. All right. Well, Carrie, you know, Ed Trust is just a few blocks away from the Thomas B. Fordham Institute World Headquarters here in, in downtown Washington. <laughs> but it is nasty out there. And Carrie has a baby on the way. So we're doing this remotely, which is really the way to do most things these days, right? Yeah, Why do people yeah. come to offices anymore? Yeah, no, it's working great for U.S. democracy. Let's all just talk to each other from massive distances <laughs> okay, good, over good, Twitter. Good point. Well, Carrie has a new analysis out on preschool that we're going to talk about. Let's do it in Ed reform update all right carrie tell us about this new paper that you have looking at early childhood education with a particular focus on kids of color what did you find thank you mike so we have a new report out and we looked at state-funded pre-k programs particularly we looked at access and quality for black and latino children and what we found was that although there are some bright spots there are no states that provide high quality and high access for black and latinos three and four year olds and so just to give you a sense of that one of our findings was that first of all the data is super limited which is always a challenge when looking at specific populations especially in early childhood so we could only really analyze this in 26 states. But of those 26 states, if we looked at all Latino three and four year olds in those states, only 1% of Latino three and four year olds had access to a high quality state funded preschool program. And then the same was true for 4% of black three and four year olds in those states. So that was a really interesting finding to us. Now, Carrie, to be clear, is it that you have reason to believe that all those other kids are attending low quality or mediocre programs? Or is it just that there's a whole bunch of programs out there for whom we just don't know if it's quality or not? I think it's a mix. So for this particular report, we looked at state-funded pre-K programs, and we took our data from NIR at Rutgers University. They were generous enough to share their data with us. They, as I'm sure you know, do a report card every year on preschools and they assign quality benchmark ratings to each state-funded preschool program. So the programs that we were looking at already had quality ratings assigned to them that we then use. So when we talk about high-quality preschool programs for this report, we're talking about programs that met 9 or 10 out of 10 of those near benchmark. So as far as quality, that's how we looked at quality for this. Of course, there's so much more to quality in early childhood, but you know, we have to define it for analysis. And then in terms of what slice of the pie these programs are, state preschool in general provides access to about a third of four-year-olds in the country. So it's a pretty big slice, especially in terms of public programming. Yeah. And when you say 26 states, I am curious with our parochial interests here in DC, was the District of Columbia included in that? It was. Yep. 
Oh, interesting. So, all right. So then that, that leaves me scratching my head because there's this perception that one of the reasons perhaps that kids in DC are, are doing so much better than before and, and still making progress when everybody else seems to be going backwards is because of this very generous pre-K program with lots and lots of three and four-year-olds uh, in publicly funded preschools in the school system. So help, help us understand that. Did they uh, did DC not do well on access or on quality or what? DC did really well in access, so they by far had the highest access. They pretty much, according to our analysis, served nearly or virtually every last four-year-old in the district, and they served three-year-olds, of course, as well. The issue with DC was quality, so for the near benchmarks, which again are just one form of measuring quality, but for the near benchmarks, they actually met just three out of 10 quality benchmarks. So there's more they can do to increase quality. And in our report, we have 10 recommendations for state or in the case DC leaders and how they can increase quality and access. So we're really hoping that states like DC that have good access can then take our recommendations and just bring up the quality. Carrie, this is David. You know, you've mentioned these 10 indicators. Can you give us a sense of where DC or other states are falling down in terms of quality as you're defining it? So what is the shortage or the yeah. shortcoming that you're seeing in a nutshell? Can I, can I make a guess? Okay, yes. I, I bet, I'm, well, I bet teachers, right? I mean, we know we still have this big problem in many preschools where we, we're not even expecting uh, preschool teachers to necessarily have bachelor's degrees. Okay. Uh, I mean, these standards. But, but you say it, Carrie. That was my guess. Was I right? <laughs> well, you are not wrong. Um, yes! There are 10 benchmarks, and one of them is that teachers have a at least a bachelor's degree. That would get one benchmark. And then another benchmark is that teachers have specialized training in early childhood or a related field. And then a third one related to that is that assistant teachers have at least a child development associate credential, the CDA. And again, these are not our quality benchmarks that we came up with. These are NEARs that they and I also just want to emphasize that NEAR itself and Steve Barnett has written about how these are minimal quality standards. So this is really the floor, as he puts it, that programs should be meeting. There's a lot more they can do to further increase the quality. Here, let's, let's talk a little bit about policy and politics here. You know, it, in my head, I have this notion that, okay... There's been a lot of talk and action on pre-K in recent years, and I would assume that that means that we've got more pre-K opportunities out there for poor kids and kids of color than before. And then especially now that the economy's better and states have money for the first time in a while, that they're probably spending that money on preschool. Am I wrong about that? I mean, when, when you look out there, do you see more states putting resources into these programs or is it going somewhere else? There are certainly more resources being put in early childhood in a lot of states, you know, particularly with the preschool development grants and um, all sorts of blending and braiding and funding that states are doing to find creative ways of doing things. So we call out some bright spots of um, states that have found creative ways to fund preschool. A big thing that we emphasize is that it's not just, of course, how much funding is going into it, but how well that funding is being spent. And so, again, that gets back to quality and how you really have to have not just seats available, but also the quality piece to really make the impact that you want to make. So, yeah, you're right. There's certainly increased funding, but states really have to think carefully about how they're using that funding. Well, right. I mean, this is always the trade-off here is do you spread the money around pretty thin 
and have these sort of low cost programs that can serve more kids? Or do you try to concentrate it and, you know, maybe spend more money, be able to afford to pay the teachers better and get higher quality teachers, et cetera. But then you have fewer kids. I will say, you know, to my friends on the left here, uh, it is curious to me that in this current presidential contest, I feel like we're hearing so much more about free college than we are about free preschool. Uh, Even though it seems so obvious to me that the the free preschool is so much more important for poor kids and working class kids than free college, which is going to end up helping to a large degree, you know, kids who are wealthier. So what's up with that? Why is (laughs) Is this a question for me? Uh, Sure, I guess so. I mean, is this this a hangover from Hillary that she was focused on this so other people aren't? I mean, where's the talk on pre-K? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's a good question, Mike. Or is it fair, Carrie? I mean, maybe am I just tuning it out? Is there, are the candidates putting out good plans on pre-K? I feel like Carrie can probably speak to this better than I can. My sense is that in a lot of places, probably there has been a lot of investment in pre-K and maybe there's some fatigue on that front. My other sense is that the candidates are not responding to primarily to the needs of the poorest Americans, even if that's what they say they're doing. Right. Thoughts? (laughs) (laughs) Carrie? You don't want to touch that one. But I guess my point is, right, yeah, I mean, it's possible they don't. All right. Well, Carrie, I guess- That's not what their primary goal is. Understanding your nonprofit status and all that. I mean, are there good plans coming out from the candidates? Are there some some good proposals out there? I'm not in a position to say which candidates' proposals are better or not, but I will say that we're always looking for candidate plans that emphasize First of all, listening to the communities that they're serving. So, you know, listening in this case to Black and Latino communities, what barriers to access they're facing, not just this nebulous barrier issue, but like what exactly the issues are that are causing barriers to access, what exactly communities value in terms of quality. And so that's where my analytical eye will be going when looking at plans. All right. But but is it fair to say they are addressing this issue? It's not like they're all ignoring it. I mean, I've certainly heard early childhood mentioned more recently than I have in the past. And I know there's more evidence that it's a bipartisan issue, which is really promising. So that's always exciting. But I do think it comes back to candidates listening to the actual people they're serving, you know, and are they talking about early childhood? Are they talking about college access? What are they, what needs are they putting forth? All right. Fair enough. Well, again, Carrie Gillespie, Senior Analyst in P12 Policy at the Education Trust. Thanks so much for joining us, Carrie. Hope you'll come back and good luck with the baby. Oh, thank you very much. All right. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. Hey, I hear that uh, Jeff Bezos, owner of the uh, Amazon Washington Post, might buy your Washington Redskins football team. Oh, man, are you serious? Wouldn't that be great? Finally get the horrible owner Do out you of think that he'd fire the owner? That's the idea. Well, he would have to buy it from oh, the owner. He'd have owner. to buy it from the owner to get rid of the owner. Right. Yeah. yeah. We have needed to get... Sorry, we've needed to get rid of that guy for a while. <laughs> I know. How awesome would this be? Oh, There's my no need to scream about gosh. it first. Uh, wow. How, how have I missed this? I know. Exactly. <laughs> come on. This could be the big thing. He's oh. not my favorite person, Although, come but on. hey. I think we need to change the name. Oh, come team. on, Mike. You're in uh. that. You're going to do that to me, too. <laughs> 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 Uh, okay, anyway. I'd just like to get Amber fired up. All right, what you got for us? We got a new study from a couple economists mm-hmm. at UC Davis and Cornell that examines the short and long-term effects of reducing access into special education services. I know we all remember this. Mm-hmm. Texas, remember the state of Texas implemented this 
policy that required school districts to reduce special education caseloads to mm-hmm. 8.5%. Mm-hmm. Remember that? Illegally, we should Illegally. Add. That was subsequently found, subsequently found 10 years later to violate federal yeah. disability law. The case study, like, but it gives us this great research design. Oh, um, the study <laughs> exploits variation in SPED placement. I'm going to say SPED, even though it's not great. I'm driven by this policy to estimate impacts. A natural experiment. There you go. Okay. So in 2005, the Texas Department of Education implemented a district level sped enrollment target of 8.5%, apparently in response to an unexpected budget cut, which led to an immediate drop in such enrollment. Besides the pressure to reduce enrollment, apparently there were no other real changes introduced in the policy. There was some some, uh, discussion of that. Over the next 10 years, enrollment dropped from 13 to 8.5%, exactly what it was supposed to be. By 2018, about 225,000 fewer students were enrolled in special education programs annually across the state. They use a couple different empirical models, but mainly a difference in differences strategy that compares changes in special education removal, education attainment, and labor market outcomes across cohorts before and after the policy. And then they also looked at differing amounts of treatment intensity. So the idea is that districts with higher pre-policy special education mm-hmm. rates face stronger pr- pressure to reduce those yeah. rates. Okay. And that cohorts were treated differentially based on how long they were exposed to the policy. The main sample consists of fifth grade special education cohorts since SPED enrollment typically levels off by fifth grade. These kids were enrolled between 1990-2000-2004-5, which was the last cohort that were diagnosed before this target was started to be enforced. Just as a side note, 91% of special education students diagnosed by fifth grade have malleable disabilities, which is, you know, speech impairment, LD, ADHD. Okay. They're not your physical or severe cognitive disabilities. Okay. So they look at that group and the non-malleable, quote, group mm-hmm. separately. Meaning harder to fix, basically. Right. I mean, yeah, or address. visually impaired. Address. Yeah. Right, visually impaired. Right. Mm-hmm. Findings. For the overall sample, those districts, again, with the higher and lower pre-policy rates, special education students enrolled in the average district experienced a 3.5 percentage point, that's about 12%, increase in the likelihood of special education removal, a 1.9 percentage point decrease in the likelihood of high school completion, that's about 2.6%, and a 1.2 percentage point, which equates to 3.7%, decrease in the likelihood of college enrollment after the policy was introduced. Specifically, for students with malleable disabilities, like I just said, who are on the margins of placement into services, Mm -hmm. special education removal decreases high school completion and college enrollment by 52 and 37 percentage points, respectively, which is a big, big effect. So I'm like, okay, what's going on? They're like, what's going on? And they contend that because the students now had to take the exit exam and without modifications... Mm -hmm. It was harder to meet the graduation requirements. And in fact, they were, after they looked into it, indeed much less likely to pass that exit exam. There were no statistically significant differences for students with non-malleable disabilities. When you say less likely to meet that, pass that exit exam, you mean than they would otherwise have been or than a traditional general ed student? Than they otherwise would have been. Not if they had not gotten into the, the if they had been applicable for services, I mean, uh, you know, eligible for services, rather. Okay, so they're taking the same exam? 
No, I'm saying that they didn't have to take the exam when they were labeled right. as a no. special education yes. student. So okay. then, it's and not now a great they were measure then they were of required. achievement per se. I That's mean, right. do we know, for example, did, basically, like, did did these kids learn less over time than they would have? That's right, and they we they, don't know that. No, they actually did look at that. They did look. Okay. Yes, they did look at like, that. Okay. That's right, they gotcha. did. Okay. Um, so yeah, it really, in my mind, it boiled down to. Oh, anyway, let me finish. Okay. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> Uh, lower income and minority students experience larger decreases, and the negative impacts tend to be concentrated among those students, in part, this is such a complicated study, in part because districts were under pressure to limit enrollment for minority students if their rate of identification mm-hmm. exceeded the proportion of minority students in the district, so there's disproportionality incentive there going on. Yes. Okay. That's it. Uh, they did not find that special education removal leads to significant declines in long-term outcomes, including college degree attainment or earnings in the labor market measured six years after graduation. But they sort of write that off and say, well, it's still too early to measure, Mm -hmm. but I'm not so sure about that. Um, Six years. And then I sort of noticed that the study was funded by the Disability Research Consortium, which Mm -hmm. I'm not sure about that. Although, whatever. That said... Yeah. Um, I do think that kids with malleable disabilities not being prepared to take an exit exam is something we should be concerned about. Whoa, something but, about those in glass houses and not throwing that. <laughs> but but <laughs> yeah. this is, well, look, this is hugely significant if, if this all checks out because you say it basically shows that special education helps. It, it works, right? I yes. mean, that, that kids did worse when they were not, when they were kicked out of these or didn't get to enjoy these services. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because we are having this debate on disproportionality where the mm-hmm. concern has been that too many kids are being mm-hmm. put in special education, namely too many kids of color and poor kids. And yet it may be that in fact, they do better when placed in special. In mm-hmm. other words, these are services. I mean, we, we are so focused on the idea that special ed is a stigma or right. that may come with lower quality teachers and all of that. And in many, in many, some cases, maybe that's a fact. But it also is a fact that these are supposed to be extra services, services that maybe well, help kids. Well, and I think for this one, it was a difference in the amount of mainstreaming, right? So you didn't get the pullout that you might otherwise receive. And that was one yeah. of the things that they were talking right. about in the report. That okay, and I just want to be It was clear. a change so, in, so in classroom they've, environment. They found a decline in learning, a big decline in achie- attainment, right. right, at the right. high school level, and then no long-term effects. Yeah. Is That's that right. basically No it? long-term okay. effects. Yeah. I mean, or look, I mean, the, 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 because again, yeah. remember, the Obama administration had this regulation that basically said, you know, we're going to go after you if you if we see disproportionality. Mm-hmm. We do not want you to be placing kids of color in these special education programs at disproportionate mm-hmm. rates. I think this study should raise questions about that. By the mm-hmm. way, the, the Trump folks were going to reverse that. It's been in court, yada, yada, yada. And mm-hmm. big debate about this stuff. There's a huge variation across states, of course. Mm-hmm. I mean, Texas, right. you know, was not, you know, should not have done and had this hard cap. But it is interesting that you see some states have 23% of kids in special ed and other states right. have 10%, right. right? Which cannot possibly be explained by just places right. randomly have more kids. It's, it's all yeah. about these definitions and who, you know, yes. qualifies. And, and, and you guys do remember the the report I did on Elizabeth Citron who looked at charter, remember yes. this whole thing yes. in charter schools. And that cut the other way. And it cut the other way, but yeah. it's like, okay, can we, you know, okay, if you're, you know, comparable circumstances of high-performing charter school, then that's one thing. But, like, we can't really expect that these schools are going to be able to offer this sort of high-quality environment that we assume charter schools in Boston are offering. Was the practical implication that some of these schools got less money? Like, is that what we're talking about here, right? 
Yeah. I mean, it takes. Yeah. <laughs> You guys, yeah, no, it was. I mean, I mean, it, I mean it, yeah, that sounds like that was motivating the whole thing. There was a yeah. budget. Fewer cut. services it was means a, less right. money. That's right. right. It, it was. It was the motivating. Yes, I mean, I know the yeah. other things. Less money presumably means fewer services. Right. right? You so, would think that's yeah. right. Yes. I guess I'm just wondering, right? Like, is it mm-hmm. how much money are we talking about here? Right. right? Yes. I'll buy that money matters, and I'll mm-hmm. buy that it matters when it goes directly to specific kids, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. I frankly buy the study and I buy the notion that if you get kids the attention and extra help they need, I just want to know. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. <laughs> I just want to know. Yeah. 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 And it wasn't, I mean, the, everything's not in the report. Like they didn't have a discussion of like the budgetary implications mm-hmm. per child and all that. That's what you're asking. There's a, just, just yeah. there's an opportunity just cost associated with anything. Right. Sure. And I'm just curious. Mm-hmm. Look, I just think we, we, first of all, special education policy is kind of a mess. And trying to manage this stuff from the federal or state level, oh my goodness, context matters. But finally, I think, you know, we, we may have this mental map that special education is, quote, the dumping ground. Mm-hmm. That was, and, and maybe that is out of date, mm-hmm. or maybe that is rare, and that in a lot of places, special ed is differentiation. Special ed is mm-hmm. a place for kids to get individualized attention and help. Mm-hmm. And we should make sure that help is available to the kids who need it most, who may right. be disproportionately kids coming from poverty. Right. And that it's high quality. I mean, we always have to say that, you know, because some of this just looks terrible in a school and some of it's high quality and some of it's not. But in this day, look, it sounds like in Texas, it was doing more good than bad. That is the truth. More help. At least in the short term for some of these other longer term stuff. Not so clear. All right. We will leave it there. Go read about your uh, Redskins camper. <laughs> okay. That's all the time we've got. Until next week. I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gap Life Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.